Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The classic example is St. Augustine going with some friends into an orchard and stealing some pears. And what made this perverse for Augustine is he wasn't hungry. He had nothing against the owner of the orchard. Um, he just well, he wasn't sure why he did it. Yeah. And, and so I think we do a lot of things that way. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, again, I don't think it's going to be mystical or magical. I think it's often expressions of human desires that we don't take as seriously as we should, like the desire to be autonomous, maybe the desire to be unpredictable to others. Today, I get to talk with the eminent psychologist, Paul Bloom of Yale University and the University of Toronto about the human brain, about morality, empathy, perversity, all the things on Almost Good Catholic. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about religion and history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope the format and relationship and dialogue and back and forth may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. Should you want to take the conversation a step further, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I have the great pleasure of speaking to Paul Bloom. He is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and professor emeritus at Yale. He studies how children and adults make sense of the world with a special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, exactly what I want to ask him about, and fiction and art. He's written for scientific journals such as Nature and Science and the Popular Press, the New York Times, The Guardian, New Yorker, The Atlantic. He's got seven books. The latest one is Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. The book is a lively introduction to psychology and a discussion of the state of the field, and it it follows from his many years of teaching introductory psychology. A million people have taken his class on Coursera, and I have audited his class on Yale Open Courses. Paul is a brilliant teacher. He talks to us, really the same way he talks to the kids at Yale as open-minded, educated generalists with no expert knowledge assumed. So welcome, Professor Bloom. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. It's, uh, I think this conversation will take me in directions I don't normally go, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Wonderful. Well, the honor is the honor's mine. Um, do you have a joke you like to start off with? It's kind of a Jewish joke, though. It has no Jewish content. Um, it's um, this, this old, guy, old guy's driving, and his wife phones him up and says, Moisha, Moisha, oh, my God, are you on the highway? He says, yeah. And she says, be very careful. I heard there's some crazy guy. He's driving on the wrong, the wrong direction. And he says, one crazy guy, there's a hundred of them. <laughs> Maybe it's a metaphor for those of us who have unpopular views. Yeah. Well, okay, let's start there. Um, how, do you, how do you understand uh, belief? Uh, you know, you, you, you study religion and you study it in a psychological uh, point of view. And I, I, I take it that you yourself are not, you're, you're uh, culturally Jewish, but you do not believe or? That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, I, I, I'm culturally Jewish. I, I affiliate as a Jew. I describe myself as Jewish, but uh, I, I don't have uh, religious beliefs uh, in the same sense most of my family does. Um, yeah. And you're asking a wonderful question. 
I, I think the way I would answer it is, and, and actually, let, let me just step back, which is the question you're asking uh, about the nature of religious belief is in some sense independent of the questions that people really want to ask, which is, you know, are these beliefs true? Uh, to what extent, you know, can we trust and what extent are there foundations of, of life? To what extent they capture deep wisdom? Regardless of whether or not we believe in a God or we believe in, in any sort of religion, the question still exists. Where do you, what's the nature of these beliefs? Um, some beliefs are true, some beliefs are false, but you talk about the character separate from them. I guess what I would say to answer your question is that religious beliefs tend to come in two flavors, though it's difficult to clearly pull them apart sometimes. One is culturally specific religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, a belief like, um, I don't know, Christ died for one's sins, or heaven looks like this, hell looks like that. Those are beliefs that, are, that, are, that are emerge through culture. If you, if you have them, it's because you learned them, because you learned them on your parents' knee, or you learned them in Sunday school, or from popular culture. But those are beliefs that emerge through culture. You know, putting aside the question of how true they are, that's where those beliefs come from. The second sort of belief, which I've been interested in as a psychologist, are sort of more universal beliefs. So I, my very first popular book was called Descartes' Baby. And in there, I argue that we're natural born dualists, that the idea that the body and the soul are separate, that we're not our bodies, is something we're kind of born with. Maybe not in exactly that form, but it's fundamental to us. I also think, as another case, that a sort of common sense creationism, an idea that complicated things, including natural things, have an intentional designer, that that too isn't a product of a culture. It's something which emerges in every culture because it captures how people naturally think. Okay. So those are two different ways to approach it. Now, I can imagine, right, there's this, there's this, whenever you go on YouTube and you see people debating religion, they always go to like, well, we only choose a religion because it helps us explain the unexplainable. So I think it's kind of a childish approach because now we're learning more and more things. And yet we still we still believe. And I think this is the dualistic um, inclination we all have, you know, because I'm around when I'm dreaming and mm-hmm. where do I go when I when I die? And OK, so maybe there's no water above the heavens, as it describes in Genesis, uh-huh. because I understand how the water cycle works. And yet I think I know in my heart of hearts that I'm not I'm more than what I, you know, more than what I think I am. I I once told a story where I was uh, at a Ramadan thing in West Africa when I was a young fellow and they cut open a goat and I really saw the anatomy of this goat, you know, and it was like, that looks a lot like a person. Yeah. And yet I am not locate. Like I could tell in my, in my heart, in my bones, in my marrow, as well as in my brain, that that's not, that thing is not me. I'm something else. Now that's, that's just, just an intuition. There's nothing I can prove or disprove. So it's just a question of faith or what? I think the intuition you're describing, you know, really eloquently, is a very powerful intuition that people possess. Um, I think people have the sense that they could leave their body, they could leave it during dreams. They, we enjoy stories where people drift off from one body to another. There are universal beliefs in reincarnation or going to a spirit world or certainly life after death that all presuppose that what we are is separate from our physical self. So again, stepping back from whether or not it's true, I don't think it is true. It does seem to be a powerful and persistent belief that people have. And, um, and, and, and I think just, just to go back to what you said before, I'm also sort of suspicious of silver bullet. Uh, don't we call them some magic bullet? So anyway, singular, yeah, yeah, yeah. singular explanations of religion. I think religion is very complicated and has many yeah. parts. And the story for why all around we do certain rituals and sacrifices 
may be different from the story for why we have certain religious beliefs. And yeah. that may be different from the story of why we uh, deal with um, with heretics in one way, and the story of how we deal with outgroups. I think religion is an extremely complicated thing, and and you know somebody says, "I'll just tell you where it all comes from." I have yeah. I have this huge uh, a suspicion of those sort of simple arguments. Yeah, um, one of the interesting things you said because you also have a podcast with your friend and colleague Dave Pizarro about this book Psych that follows it chapter by chapter, so people who buy the book can also listen to you talk through it. And in one of them, I think I'm I might be mi- mixing up where I heard you say this, but you were explaining to Dave that you had a colleague at Yale a while ago who was a neuroscientist, and she herself was a, a person of of great faith. And yes. and how did you talk to her about that? What did she say to you when when you guys had the same um, like, okay, so I understand how these neurons are firing in my brain. I understand this neural network, or at least I, I understand the mechanics of it, even yeah. if I don't understand why it's doing the things it's doing. Yeah. What, did, what did this neuroscientist have to say to you about it? Um, I, I wish I could give you a better answer for this, yeah. but, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an aggressive confrontational person. Oh, and, okay. <laughs> and, and, and most, most people, not all, you know, theologians are often the exception to this, but most people have religion in a special place in their life. And, yeah. and, and, you know, talking to them where you challenge their religious beliefs or call them to task or say, how do you justify this? How do you make this compatible? It's a lot like saying, you know, boy, you seem to think your kid is terrific, but well, I got another view. Let me tell, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, yeah. And, and that's just not, that's just not my role. I've, I've talked to, to, to people of faith who are willing to, who are interested, who are almost professionally interested in debating these things. But, uh, but, but she wasn't. And that was, that was fine. Yeah. No, it's like for me, it's tricky because my intuition, my my sense of faith comes from things that are very subjective and personal. And it could be I was just saying this prayer and then pow, the sun came out or I heard a certain song come on the radio or the wind just brushed against my cheek. Uh, I once I once had a moment where I was my littlest daughter at this time had swallowed a penny and had to spend the night at the ER. And Mm -hmm. I had and I had I was under the impression I'd left my Bible with with, you know, some prayers in it at the church. But I was mistaken. And as I was driving to the hospital, I was I was thinking to myself, oh, if only I brought my Bible because there was a certain prayer I had printed and I wanted it at that moment. And a pedestrian walked out and I stepped on the brakes and the Bible was not at the church where I thought I had left it. It was under the seat of my car and it slid out from under the seat of the car and the prayer slid out from the cover and landed on top of my foot. And I told everybody who was willing to listen, this miracle just happened. And they're like, "Okay, sure, sure, America. Okay, sure. Or maybe you just left the book under the chair. And then you yeah. have to stop because a guy was crossing the street. Um, and I feel that like what's convincing to me is not going to persuade anybody else. And even if I, you know, thump on a podium with my, you know, Professor Bloom, Professor Bloom, don't you yeah. don't you understand? Uh, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like I'm the Russell Crowe character in Beautiful Mind who just sees patterns yeah. uh, that are not there. Um, but for me, it's it's quite compelling. It, uh, it- it's a nice case. You know, you tell me that story. Ah, that's a nice, that's a nice story. I can imagine it being, being, you know, very moving and very, you know, yeah. and, and just at a time, actually, when you're experiencing some pain beyond the sort of, you know, the, 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 the seemingly minor miracle aspect of it, 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 it must have been nice during a time where you're worried about your daughter to have mm-hmm. to realize, oh, I'm not alone here. You know, yeah. I'm getting some, I'm giving some help with this. Um, and, and my feeling is it sort of depends what you want to do with this. If, if, if you wanted to say, well, I'm now going to make an argument that, that that cannot be explained in natural terms, well, you know, 
then then it gets then it's sort of in the same same vein as somebody tells me how their dreams regularly predict the future or their fortune teller knows everything or their psychic knows everything which is i think i'm quite comfortable to let alone and and other people are probably comfortable that my own delusions are i don't want to weigh too heavily on that on my own pattern recognition mm-hmm. alone. um unless i wanted to make something of it unless yeah. I, unless i sort of demanded well, you, you're gonna you better see my psychic you know he'll straighten you out <laughs> yeah yeah, um, and there's a there's a an example of Emil Zola who went to Lourdes where there were you know a number of miracles happening, and he would see people go into the water and come out healed, and he'd say, "Well, I, I still don't believe it, you know, I just saw it, and I still don't believe it because there's some other explanation. I don't know what the explanation yeah. is, but I you know it's I, I don't buy it. Fish three days old, I don't buy it. <laughs> and then again, there is the line about the person who. Uh, who insisted they don't believe in a good luck charms and the other person said it doesn't matter they work whether you believe in them or not so. <laughs> yeah well okay so an, another central point you begin and end this book um, thinking about kant who says two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe they more often and steadily we reflect on them the starry heavens about me and the moral law within me and you start off where you dropped off your kid at a birthday party and you're just reading an astrophysics book under a tree and you're so delighted with wonder about the mechanics of the glorious and vast vast universe around us. And I feel that way about the brain too, that we yeah. can understand you know, the forces of gravity at the expanding universe and how, I don't know, like a red dwarf, turn, red giant turns into a white dwarf and all that. On the other hand, when we understand the mechanics of how the universe works, we still don't understand why the universe works. And when mm-hmm. we understand that, okay, so your brain is, you know, 86 billion neurons or whatever firing and, and sending uh, little teeny tiny neurotransmitters across a teeny tiny synaptic gap. So, okay, I understand the mechanics, but that doesn't give me the reason why. And, and same thing with the Big Bang. So we can rewind the tape to the moment of creation but there still is a moment of creation. And so how can that be without a creator? How can the brain be without a creator? Yeah, so so we often deal with why questions. You know, why does memory work that way? Why do we see the world as we do? Why do we have the emotions that we do? And, you know, as you know, there's a science of, of such why questions, evolutionary theory. So, you know, when faced with a threat that could kill you, there's actually a really good story for why you fill with fear rather than with lust or amusement, you know, because, you know, such ancestors who found us extremely amusing did not pass on their genes to those uh, mm-hmm. later on. Um, now, you can then say, well, fine, psychology and bio- psychology raises why questions, biology solves them. And then you can go back to, but where does biology come from? Or why does natural selection work that way? And sooner or later, I agree, explanation has to end. Maybe you and I would disagree about the extent to which positing a creator actually solves a problem or just further pushes it back. Yeah. Well, it, at, a, at a point, we're just quibbling over the term because clearly you agree that there was nothing and there was something. But when your kids ask you, well, how come there was nothing and then there was something, what do you tell them? I would tell them, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, then, but, then, but, but my kids are very sharp. So if I said, well, you yeah. know, there was a God or created some God or set of gods or something like that. And they created it. My kids would have been said, well, yeah, where did those gods come from? You haven't answered my question. You gave me a different something. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's because we started with something that was eternal and um, independent. 
whereas the universe is neither internal nor independent. Or is yeah. it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Talk to cosmologists. <laughs> but, but, but to go back is that there are a lot of why questions. about. There, yeah. there are genuine mysteries about the brain. And, and I try to be honest about the limits of our field, both, mm-hmm. both the limits in the sense of stuff we just don't quite know yet. Uh, we don't really understand depression very well, for instance. We don't understand how genes uh, court genes cause differences in personality. And then there's like genuine mysteries, like how the brain gives rise to consciousness. But I do think that that we, we really do, there is a science of why questions. Uh, if I, Even if I concede your point that in the end, science is going to fail us at the very beginning of the universe, fine. But at the level I'm interested in, we really do have a science of testable experimental why questions with good mechanisms and good understanding. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's just above our pay grade. And I'm not worried. You know, I, I sort of, I like to believe that when we all die and go meet our maker, whatever that looks like, I am sure that God did not set up a trap where he's like, ah, you, you lost your chance to believe when those young people knocked at your door and said, do you believe? That was your one shot. I, I have a feeling that when the game is over and the curtain comes down, you'll be you'll be allowed to make up your mind with the with <laughs> with the with the information you get once we once we leave this body. Um, though I don't think you believe that you ever leave this body. No. You're no. gone. We're, you're gone, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. It's sad, yeah. isn't it? It's a little sad. Well, uh, <laughs> the scarcity increases the value. Uh, that's that's a nice thought. I I, I know some philosophers argue that if we were to be truly immortal nothing would have much meaning. Yeah. Well, that's why we need the illusion. That's why we need the curtain to say, like, this is your shot at this. You know, I like to tell my kids it's like playing a board game or a Dungeons and Dragons game. And you can be very much invested in your level four elf paladin. And when a dragon eats him, you're still done. You're still at the table and you still get to go have your snack. And uh, it doesn't that doesn't make that game less valuable. In yeah. fact, in many ways, it's practice for whatever. You know, I don't understand why we're here um I, I suppose we all quickly get to the point where like i just i don't know why and so it becomes a question of faith yeah that's fair enough yeah. that's fair enough there's a, there's a lot of interesting things in this lovely in this lovely book and one of the comments you have about religion um you're, you cite a, 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 an article by um angus deaton and arthur stone called two happiness puzzles and you said that religious people in a secular country like probably this one, um, tend to be more happy than pe- uh, than the people who aren't. And at the same time, people who live in a religious country tend to be less happy. Um, and so I was wondering what that's all about. Is it the difference of uh, free choice and dissent or what's going on? Um, so I would frame it somewhat differently. I don't, I don't typically think of the United States as, as a secular country. Ah. It's it's um it's a country where the majority of people, depending on your polls, but it used to yeah. be the vast majority of people believe in God, and maybe now it's just you know eighty five percent or something, um where where people tend to identify, except for the very young where the numbers tend to drop a bit, they identify as Christian or Jewish or Muslim. Um, there are I think more secular countries in the world, but in a country like the United States, we're pretty religious, and I'm pushing that point because um that's. When the data were collected, the argument that people like Deacon, and before him, uh, Robert Putnam, the sociologist, argue that if you're religious in a country where religion is prized, your life is going to be better in certain ways. You have, you're less lonely. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, and, and in fact, there's all of these benefits that religion accrues. This is Putnam's work. Um, 
people who are religious in the United States tend to be happier, they tend to be healthier, and they tend to be kinder. They tend to give more to charity, give more blood, and uh, you know, do, do nicer to the homeless and so on. But then they did a deep dive and said, well, what aspect of being religion is, is driving this? And the answer is, it has nothing to do with religious belief. It has to do everything with religious attendance. So, um, so as Putnam put it, you know, if, if, if you're married to somebody who goes to church and you dutifully go to church, even though you're a total atheist and you have nothing but scorn for that, you will still accrue all the benefits of religion because you'll get the community. And I think that helps with the puzzle. And because um, it, it, and then religion gets its powers through sort of community. If we had a more secular society, you know, we had bowling leagues or other ways of getting together, um, the benefits would accrue that way. Yeah. And what do you think uh, people who live in religious countries tend to be less happy? What do you think that's about? So, I, I mean, not Iran. I, yeah. I got you there, but <laughs> where else? I, uh, I, I, um, however tempted I am to sort of take a, a cheap shot at religion and say, oh, religions ruin these countries and so on. I think the causality is in the other way. I think that the, the mechanism through which this happens is countries that are, are poor, have less education, going through difficult times, suffering from war, suffering from deprivation tend to be more religious and it's more, and, and religion is to some extent by far from, from always, but to some extent abandoned as countries become wealthier, women get more rights, there are other freedoms and opportunities. Gotcha. So, so, so it's not like, like, oh my God, religion is making these people in a bad place. Rather, if when you're in a bad place, religion may be more tempting. There's okay. some evidence, by the way, when you ask people in different countries about how much meaning their life has countries, uh, there's at least two effects. One effect is that unlike the happiness data, the poorer countries, citizens say they have more meaning in their lives. Also, those countries tend to be more religious. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, that makes perfect sense. I, the causation and correlation, yeah, that helps a lot. Um, okay, let's go back to the previous topic, which is how do you understand um, consciousness uh, or even sentience? What's the materialistic idea of how, what are we? What are we? Paul. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, if, if I want to play, if I want to play the, the, the crude materialist, I'd say we're, yeah. we're machines made out of meat, you know, which yeah. is a remarkably <laughs> ugly phrase. And I meant to be ugly, to be fair, uh, yeah. by, 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 by Marvin Minsky, the AI pioneer. Um, and I, I think um, I, I, I would not put it that way. I, I begin my, my, my book, I can't remember this on the fly, but with a quote from John Updike, one of John Updike's characters, Rabbit, where he's having an argument with a friend. And his friend says, they're talking about his friend going under having surgery. And Rabbit is repulsed. And then his friend said, you know, you know uh, and Rabbit says something like, they're just going to hook you up to a machine. And, and Rabbit's friend said, um, said to him, what does that bother you? We're, what are we? We're just machines anyway. And then Rabbit immediately thinks, no, I'm an apprentice angel. I'm God-made. I'm a spiritual mm-hmm. being. And, um, and that sounds a lot prettier than machines made out of meat. But I do think all of our science converges on the idea that not only does our intelligence, what we're doing now, being able to have a conversation, remember things, reason about the world, come from our physical natures, um, so too does our sentience and consciousness. I think it's a tremendous mystery how it happens. Yeah, but I think that the evidence that that's in fact what does happen is fairly strong. 
Yeah, and I th- there's something in it too that our powers far exceed our ability to even grasp them. And I think psychology has helped me a lot with that. Because if you ask me, what am I doing? I'd say, well, I'm sitting by a laptop with a microphone talking to Paul Bloom, who's in Canada. But at the same time, I'm looking, I'm sitting in a little courtyard, there's sunlight, there's trees, I can hear the wind, I can see a flag, I can see clouds, I can see your yellow book right here on the table. And if I touch it, I can tell that it's smooth. And I can touch it and tell that it's smooth, even as I'm speaking these words without giving them a second thought. And I'm Mm -hmm. doing all these things all at the same time. I'm doing more things many times over than I can describe that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so what am I, this miraculous machine? How, how is it possible that such a small, you say the brain is about the size of a, of a pizza. <laughs> all, Depends all, on the pizza, but that, that, that'll work fine, yes. Right, but bald, a balled up, bloody, like a big piece yeah. of hamburger. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. how is that possible? So there's a couple of questions there. Yeah. One question is, how is your intelligence possible. And, you know, if we were talking at a time of Rene Descartes, Descartes could make the argument saying, look, we can't be physical things because, look, we play chess. No mm-hmm. physical thing can play chess. Don't be ridiculous. Physical things work on a basic <clears throat> push-pull mechanical causation. Yeah. Doing something as smart as playing chess or understanding language or, or, or adding up numbers could not be done by a mere machine. It's ridiculous. And now, you know, you know the punchline to this, which is, you know, at some point computers came into being, computational theory. And now we know that that machines, the machine you and I are, are the different machines you and I are talking with, can do intelligent machines, can do intelligent things. I don't think anybody thinks GPT-4 has a soul. Yeah. But, but we are very impressed with what it can do. And you could take that as an existence proof, something that plainly is nothing but a machine can do very smart things. So that there we could say about Descartes, he was simply mistaken. Now, then there's a harder part of the equation. How does a physical thing give rise to consciousness? Uh, You know, not only doing smart things, but but feeling pain, feeling love, feeling qualitative experience. That's a, a huge mystery. You know, we, we know that the brain, we, we, we have consciousness detectors, you know, EKGs, you know, we can see whether somebody's asleep or awake, aware, alert. There's a million ways to study consciousness, but how physical things give rise to conscious experience is, I think, still a huge mystery. And we're also living at the perhaps enviable moment when all of this is coming Right. It's all it's accelerated so quickly. I remember when, you know, was it 20 years ago? We all watched uh, the deep blue computer beat Gary Kasparov. Yeah. And now my phone can kick my butt without, you know, playing chess. No, no problem. However, however, even though, you know, every everybody's three hundred dollar iPhone can beat the masters of chess anytime. It still needs me to tell it which squares have a stoplight or a school bus on it so that it can tell that, you know, so. It can't do that for some reason. Yeah, a computer can't tell you which one is the stoplight. So, well, we're, yeah, well, within 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 its constraints, it's super powerful. But I, I have a feeling it's about to flip. And what if these machines do become conscious? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting discoveries of artificial intelligence is that it's kind of what looked hard turned out to be easy, and what easy turned out to be hard. So everybody said chess is the sort of pinnacle of intelligence, but computers conquer chess pretty quickly, even though it's very difficult for us and complicated. But then you look what a three-year-old does, language making its way through the world, 
um, recognizing simple objects, those have proven to be the enormous challenges for AI. But, you know, I, I, I was once, if you asked me five years ago, I would have said stuff very differently. I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable saying this is one of many domains where I guessed wrong. I would not have thought we would be here now. Yeah. with machines like this. And and so so if somebody if you're going to tell me that 5 years from now we have perfectly good self-driving cars, I have no reason to doubt it. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's the question of will we have machines that for which it's a reasonable plausible guess that they're conscious. Um and how would we know if we do? I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, um, there's a, a movie with Scarlett Johansson where she plays a machine, and yeah. she and uh, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. The movie's called Her. Joaquin Phoenix has a, it's like, I don't know if it's a telephone, but he has some kind of operating system, and it's it has you know it's personified as a woman, and she's smart enough to be his girlfriend. And he, later on, he realizes, well, actually, she's many places at the same time, and she has 400 boyfriends because yeah. she can she can she can talk to me and talk to somebody else. But she builds a relationship that resembles to him and to her. Like she thinks she understands it as a human relationship, as a true, you know, a romantic. Uh, that's I, that 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 feels like it's right around the corner. Um, you was, you have an anecdote. Sorry, go ahead. There was a guy a few months ago. I think uh, Blake Lamoni. I we follow yes. each other on Twitter, and and he got he got fired or or put on leave by Google because yeah. he insisted that the chatbot he was working with was sentient. And as such, was held as a slave by Google. Didn't give was working, you know, was was providing unpaid labor. Was being coerced. And for a long time, there were a lot of jokes made at this man's expense. But I think he's a canary in a coal mine. I think that that this sooner or later, these chatbots are going to get smarter and smarter and smarter. And then it's no longer going to be obviously wrong. Maybe maybe it was never obviously wrong to say there's there's a person here. Yeah. Oh, that's. I wish I were older so that I wouldn't have to <laughs> sort it out. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I. I don't know. I. I, mean, I wish I was younger so I could see how all this is going to come to an end. That's right. That's right. I studied the um, Spanish Empire. Maybe I should have been a neuroscientist. <laughs> the Spanish Empire doesn't have much future. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's going to happen? You have a speculation. You know, like for one thing, why should you pay a mach- Why should you pay a robot? Does it even want money? Maybe yeah. it does want money. Yeah. What is it that the AI could possibly want with a bank account? It probably wants what we tell it to want, what's yeah. programmed into it to want. Um, my friend Steven Pinker argues that a lot of apocalyptic worries about AI sort of assumes that it has human-like desires for control and domination. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and as such, we, you know, we have all these terrifying Skynet fantasies. Right. Um, and and I, I think he's right. That we tend to we tend to too quickly say, oh, we must have these motives that will put us put at odds with us. But I have right now the debate is I had there's a lot of smart people who say we have to slow down in creating these things. We are we are going to run into trouble, and the trouble ranges everywhere from they're going to send up a lot of information on the web and con people and make serious mistakes, all the way to they're going to we're going to be living very quickly with another species that's smarter than us. And maybe we don't want to go there just now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you often are a guest on Russ Roberts show econ talk, and I forget who he was talking to, but he was talking to somebody this week um, and who was noticing that homo sapiens had 300,000 years ago had killed a number of rivals. Yes. Neanderthal is one, but if we create things in our own image and we're this murderous, you know, um, 
I mean, we are murderers, aren't we? But we're also very good at the same time. We're all these things all at the same time. Um, what if what if we create a machine that, you know, like exactly as you say, like Skynet or The Matrix that is uh, extractive and cruel, or perhaps it's just very happy to do what we tell it and yeah. we can... Yeah, I remember that discussion of uh, Kevin Kelly and, and he gave an example of, you know, we might just be a bunch of Neanderthals just sitting around a fire inviting Homo sapiens sapiens to join us. And, you know, and yeah. it, it just may be the end of us. Yeah. Or, yeah. or... Um, it turns out to be this extraordinary boon where these these things that work for us that are much smarter than us solve our problems. They 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 figure out how to have abundant energy. They figure out how to abolish war. They figure out how to how to make people flourish and happy. It's it's a sort of something with extreme tail risks and extreme tail benefits. Yeah. No, and there's something interesting here too, because what religious people would people people of faith people of faith would say that the reason we believe in a benevolent, loving Creator is because deep down we also can be benevolent and loving, and especially to our children, maybe not to the, you know, the yeah. enemy tribe. But the goal of you know, the, the goal of mysticism is to expand the tribe to non-kin groups and to love everybody, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That that's a hard goal, but it's it's one we work on. But we often say like, oh, I believe that God loves to create because I love to create. I believe that God loves beauty because I love beauty. I compose music, but I'm not sure that there's an evolutionary benefit to that. I made this painting on the wall of my cave, but I'm not sure what the evolutionary benefit was that instead of like, say, stockpiling firewood or calories mm -hmm. somehow. So um, maybe maybe there's a clue there uh, in, in what our creator is based on what we like, and perhaps the same will be true of the, of the machines, when I, the, the digital machines. It could be, but... but um... It's an appealing analogy. I just think that people, well, typically working on AI right now, are not trying to sort of recapture our best selves, but are trying to make money. Okay. And and, uh, or, and, and actually, to put to put it in a bit of a better way, they're, they're often trying to make people's lives better. And and there are people. One way of putting you, the project you're talking about it comes under the term AI alignment problem, where the idea is to make these AIs align with you know huge the goals and morality that humans possess. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I just, I, I have no idea where this is all going to go. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. One thing you do know a lot about, and you've written a lot about is why we do the things we do and whether we have, uh, what is morality? What is free will? Where do children get, uh, morality? And I'd like to ask you about free will and about sin you, you have a wonderful story about um, St. Augustine who steals pears for the heck of it. And I, I have a quotation from, from St. Paul in his letter to the Romans where he, he muses, you know, what I do, I do not understand, for I do not do what I want, but I do what I hate. This is the human condition. We're always making mm -hmm. the same mistakes over and over and over again. Uh, what have you learned about this in, in, your, in your work? Well, in some sense, we're moving to the topic of my next book, or the book I'm hoping to write, which is on perverse decisions and perverse actions. Okay. So a lot of what I talk about in psych is rational decisions and actions and moral ones. How do we know to do the right thing? How do we reason our way out of situations? And I talk about the science of that. But I have an interest in what I call, or what, what philosophers tend to call, perverse actions. So the classic example is St. Augustine going with some friends into an orchard and stealing some pears. And 
what made this perverse for Augustine is he wasn't hungry. He had nothing against the owner of the orchard. Um, he just actually wasn't sure why he did it. Yeah. And, and so I think we do a lot of things that way. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, you know, again, I don't think it's something mystical or magical. I think it's often expressions of human desires that we don't take as seriously as we should, like the desire to be autonomous, maybe the desire to be unpredictable to others. That makes sense. I remember as a, as a, as a teenager, when no one was looking, just smashing a plate. Yeah. Because we drop plates all the time, but I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to smash this plate and see what happens. And nothing happened. <laughs> yet, yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yes. Yeah. Sometimes um, I, I think, I think we all, the, the way I put it, um, I have this TED talk on it, which I, which, which is, is I, I enjoy doing, but has mostly the fun things and none of the contemplative things about it. But the way I think about it is sometimes that as adults, we walk around and we know the intelligent thing to do and we know the moral thing to do. But we sometimes feel like if we just do that, what use are we? We're just kind of running out the program. And so we want to do something, I don't know, I, you, you get me in a theological mode. I wonder yeah. whether, I wonder whether, I wonder whether, um, and, and I hope this isn't overly blasphemous. I wonder whether sometimes you want to surprise God. Yeah. You know, looking at, huh. he knows, oh, I know what this guy's going to do next. I know, and then all of a sudden you break the plate. Yeah. Yeah. No. And of course we, so there's, we believe that God knows. I kind of, I don't know how to sort this out because, you know, speaking of jokes, the Calvinist falls down the stairs and he says, I'm glad I got that over with, you know, whereas we go, we go through life believing that we have total autonomy, but we yeah. also understand that, you know, the author knows how the book ends, even yeah. though I'm still on choose your own adventure page 472. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, that, yeah. That's, and that's a theological version of problem of free will. There's a physicist version. The theological version is that, that if God knows exactly what you're going to be doing next, in what sense are you free? And, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a simple question. Right. And, uh, and God made you that way. So why should you be punished? <laughs> yeah, that's another. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. How could you be morally responsible for something that in the end, it was predestined that you would do it? Yeah, I, if, if I have heard and I don't know if it's true that you are currently in the same office that was previously occupied by Dr. Peterson. Uh, it is exactly true. That's where I am right now. All right. So he likes to say this. He likes to cite the example from The Simpsons where Homer is eating mayonnaise and drinking vodka. And Marge says, well, why are you doing that, Homer? And Homer says, well, that's not my problem. That's tomorrow Homer's problem. He's the one who's going to wake up hungover, you know, full of mayonnaise. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's just maybe it's just a surprise. Maybe just to test our limits. Some of it's testing our limits. Some of it, you know, some of it is not perverse at all. It's the standard trade offs where, you know. I might just really enjoy vodka and, and mayonnaise and, <laughs> and, um, and, um, and, and not, and, you know, not care that much about future me who is going to have to suffer the consequences. There's always, there's always certainly a complicated decision over how much you're supposed to weigh your future self versus your, your present self. Um, yeah. it's kind of clear when we see extremely people save for their retirement and that's nice, but also, you know, you, you're, your present self has to have some, some value. I sometimes yeah. think, I don't think this is in the end, the problem, the, the problem of morality, which is 
you have to sort of figure out how much this conscious self you right now is how much to value relative, not just to everybody around you, the people you love, the strangers, but also to people in the future, including yourself. So my future self and also the people who are going to benefit from my being, uh, I don't know, alert and sober and responsible. That's right. Uh, and and what my kids and grandkids will inherit from me not um, and what I'll leave them. That's right. You know, there, there's this article I, I, I read from my course called uh, uh, Moral Saints by Susan Wolf. And I'm curious what you think. She says that moral saints, people who spent all their focus trying to make the world a better place, and not foolishly, they, they, they really make the world better, are actually, something bothers her about them. She finds them boring. She wouldn't hmm. want to be a moral saint. She wouldn't want her children to be moral saints. Um, and I don't know. What do you think? It's a really good question. I, I mean, like when you think about Bill Gates, who's going to go make clean water for everybody. Yeah. That seems, that seems great, right? I, I think it's very easy to act in a way that I understand. And maybe if you're Bill Gates, you, you understand how to clean water. But I don't know. I'm just sending money to Ukraine or to Somalia. That's what I'm doing. But what I can do is say a nice word to somebody who's, who's feeling low or I can buy a, a sandwich for a homeless man. Yep. Um, so I feel like within my immediate sphere, it makes a lot of sense because then I'm, I'm not only just sending material, but I'm actually making that human, human interaction that ennobles, us, that ennobles us both. But I'm, I also think you got to, like you say, you need, a, you need a balance. You should have, you know, you should have two, two drinks after dinner, not 10, or, yeah. but you shouldn't have zero either. Or, uh, yeah. I, have, I, have I grasped her question? Is that? Yeah. To some extent, although she would say, you know, you, you spoke to one extreme, which is the true altruist spends all their time trying to make the world better in a maximally best way, giving yeah. out money, you know. And so, no, you don't spend your time give, buying a homeless man a sandwich and handing it to him because, you know, that time could have been better spent, more bang for the buck. But the problem is if you will spend never, you would never spend time learning to play an instrument. You would never spend excess time with your kids. You would never spend time just watching a TV show or movie that you enjoy. You'd just be a machine for making the world better. Yeah. And there's something very uncomfortable about that. But, you know, I'm I'm reminded by something. I'm reminded of of a debate that Peter Singer got with Colin McGinn in a book called called Philosophers and the Critics. So, So Peter Singer imagined in every room in an affluent society, um, there'd be a TV screen. And through this TV screen, you would watch people in faraway lands starving to death as a way to induce yeah. you to pay money and help them. And McGinn said, oh, my God, what a horrible, how horrible that would be. And Peter Singer's response was not for the person starving to death. You know, so yeah, there, there so, is a balance there. Uh, well, so I love this because we're going into your book Against Empathy, right? Yeah. And is that is that the one where Peter Singer wants to jump into a fountain to help a drowning child? but then asks, why don't you send the same amount of money that your dry cleaning bill was to help a starving child on the other side of the planet? That's right. That's right. So, so what, what Singer does is he, he, he's a brilliant philosopher, and he says he takes cases where the moral intuitions are clear. You know, you could reach into a, reach into a pond, save a drowning child, certainly you would, and then says, you know, those this very same cases exist, and they aren't immediately present, but they're no different in kind. And so, and from this, he derives the conclusion that we have this immense obligation to help others. Yeah, but the, the, the problem there is the kids are not starving because they don't have 
resources. They have they're starving for political reasons because yeah. they're they're being one tribe is pushing out another tribe or one religion is persecuting another religion or uh, like all that we could send all the food we want is still going to sit in a in a warehouse on mm-hmm. the port. How are you, you know unless you want to commit the military to go distribute it forcibly, who knows what you're doing because you might be destroying yep. the local economy and, you know, somebody else might have grown the exact same grain you've just given for yep. free. Uh, so I just think we don't understand the consequences. No, so it's I, very, I, yeah. I think that's really right. I, a, a lot of what I did, what I argued in against empathy, building upon the work of other people saying that sometimes we want to do good and we let our gut feelings tell us how to do good. And sometimes we just end up wasting money or wasting time or worse, making the world, the world, less of a good place yeah yeah i um totally um okay so i want to also take up going a little back back one step uh you write in your book um about spock and data yeah uh in in star trek uh and that they are not emotional at all um and i disagree in a pedantic way that spock is super emotional he's just suppressed all his things as a as an adult vulcan but the, the point is taken that they are both yeah. They're both trying to live in sort of a uh, utilitarian way where everything they do is rational and free of emotion. Um, but of course, that's impossible because we know that they, you know, Data longs to have emotions and he has motivations which get him up out of his, you know, wherever he is, his cubby or his bed <laughs> or, you know, wherever that's they right. store to, to report to duty. I mean, he still gets time off. He doesn't, he's not awake 24 hours a day. He's still like, he's still playing with his cat and learning yeah. the violin. Uh, yeah, and I, so, so I, I accept your, your I accept your pedantic <laughs> correction. The, the stories yeah. are not exactly identical, but 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 the broader point, and actually, again, I, I owe this to Pinker and how the mind works. He uses this very example, um, is that is that you need emotions, you need feelings and desires and drives to do anything. Um, if all of a sudden, you know, Spock watched as as someday somebody attacked Kirk and started to eat away at it try to eat him up because it's a, it's a carnivorous <laughs> alien. Presumably Spock wouldn't just stand there and be calculating yeah. prime numbers. He'd be motivated to respond. Well, those are, that's what we call emotions. You know, he'd feel fear. Maybe he'd feel anger. He'd feel tremendous concern about his friend. He'd da 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 um, If you don't have emotions, you just lie there. And in fact, there are real world cases of this. Uh, Antonio Damasio talks about people with serious frontal lobe damage who there's no such thing as a person without emotions, but but it damages their emotional capacity. And they basically just lie there. They they can't, they just see different they, they, different priorities come to mind, but they don't want to move on any of them. There's nothing motivating them. Yeah. So this also reveals something about this very young science of psychology, which is we kind of figure out what's happening in the brain when something goes wrong. Uh, and you have a lot of examples Um in your book, but uh, one of them is this famous, uh, some kind of railroad worker, or maybe like a miner, some kind of miner, Phineas Gage, who blasted a, a metal bar through his head. And then you have another fellow named Greg F., yeah. another fellow named Elliot. Would you like to say like well, how we've discovered over the last century or so how the brain works through its malfunction? So a lot of what we know about how different parts of what different parts of the brain do, what functions they subserve, is through accidents, is through the poor people like like Phineas Gage, who gets a spike through his head and then loses his impulse control and, and his sort of decency as a person. Um, more common, people get strokes and tumors, and we learn from that too. And, and in that way, 
we sort of have a sense of what different parts of, of, of the brain do. And nowadays, you know, we, we have high-tech methods like fMRI. So, you know, if I want to know what kind of what part of your brain does math, I sit you down on a scanner and I say, think math, these math problems and a part of your brain will obediently light up. Meaning, actually, that just means that means that the machine can read where electrical signals are happening. Yes, yeah. not um, in kind of a direct way. Like some of these things actually do work on, on blood flow, where where the blood goes and so on. But yeah, pretty much. And okay. and this has really practical benefits. Uh, you want to know where, for instance, if you ever have brain surgery, they'll use um, uh, various they'll use sort of electrical impulses to try to find a language area. So they have to so they're very careful not to cut into it. Um, and I find this work, um, this lo- these localization studies can be of tremendous scientific interest. The real discoveries have been made about them. Finding that two things you think are different actually might be the same. Two things that look the same might be different. On the other hand, I'm kind of, I'm kind of meh about most of them. And I, I think a lot of people in the field, after a lot of initial excitement, are kind of meh about them. Because there's nobody in the field, there's not a huge debate over whether the brain does it. There's not many people saying, well, I think short-term memories in the brain. And somebody says, you know, I, I don't. So, no, of course, short-term memories in the brain. So, you know, given that, does it really matter exactly where it is? Yeah. Well, I guess it's because it was such a young science. We really have no idea why anything happens, yeah. right? We know where it happens. But I, I even, in the, in the most basic way, I don't understand, you know, why this kind of little tiny molecule called a neurotransmitter versus a different kind gives you a different, you know, why, do, why does my brain want, I don't know, dopamine, but not acetylcholine? Or why does it yeah. want this one, but not that one? And what are they, is it like, uh, is it like, uh, you know, a, a pneumatic tube or a, you know, <laughs> a, a, a series of um, railroad signals or um, how do, I'm just at a loss and I, you know, I've only been teaching this subject at a high school for a few years, but I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm just lucky that no kids have said like, hold on, wait, because <laughs> I would have to say, yeah, I, I just don't know. I just don't know. So this gets into the domain uh, where I, I know so little about of sort of neural computation. Yeah. So the idea is, you know, forget about consciousness and forget all that stuff. You know, how does the brain do the computations necessary to recognize faces or keep your heart rate going at a steady rate? or parse a sentence of English. And the idea is it does it much like a computer. It, it you know, it, it takes impulses and it, and it transduces them and does operations on them. And the role of the neurotransmitters in these cases is either to sort of facilitate connections so that, you know, certain neurotransmitters, when, X, when neuron X connects to Y, makes Y very sensitive to X or make it harder for the connection to work. They're excitatory and inhibitory. And they do their things in all sorts of chemical ways. Sometimes neurotransmitters are like a paste that covers over the, um, the receptor of one neuron so it can't get any more information. Sometimes it's like a little scrubber. It scrubs away the other neuro- neurotransmitters to open up the channel. And I've never been that interested in it, but, mm-hmm. but it is extraordinarily elegant and complicated how the brain does this stuff. Yeah. That's a no. That's a fair enough. And maybe in ten years, and certainly in a hundred, we'll we'll see what uh, we'll see what our kids and grandkids come up with. We um, will. Though, though, I think that the real discoveries from psychology don't really come from the brain stuff. This is not. This is not to deny that the brain does it. 
but they just the real discoveries come from from at a higher level. Yeah, um, looking at looking at at how people behave and how people react and developing theories that make interesting predictions. Um, so, and of course, this is all done by the brain. But I actually feel that that sometimes the brain plays a fairly minor part when our explanations are done with. Yeah. Um, here's my last question. Uh, you know, I, I believe we're all supposed to be moral people. I'm sure you agree. I think it's because God is love and we're made in the image and likeness of our creator. And so when we are kind and loving, we feel really good about ourselves and we feel like we are in tune with our nature. Uh, when we are doing selfish, egotistical, narcissistic and sort of extractive things to others, we feel really gross about ourselves. And, and uh, so that, that discussion goes on and on. How, why do you think people are good? Is there an evolutionary... Uh, reason why we should take care of everybody, not just people in our family and our tribe. Uh, where does morality come from? On the, on the... So, so there, there's there's two questions there, at least two yeah. questions. I think people, much of what of why people are good, is through the sort of standard evolutionary theories of uh, kin selection, reciprocal altruism. We, we we care for our kin because they share our genes, and creatures that that care for their kin. Their genes spread through the environment, and that, and then it evolves. We care for people who are kind to us because we we benefit from mutual interactions. The real puzzle is why do we care for people in faraway lands? Why do we care for um, for for people we hate? Why do we yeah. care for non-human animals, for instance? Right, or, or literary figures. <laughs> yes, yes. So none of, and none of that seems like a direct consequence of natural selection. Yeah. And in fact. The, the sort of gut feelings you're talking about, they don't answer the question. Because often, for most of humanity, you tell people, oh, this tribe down the hill who you never interacted with, they're all going to die of a painful disease. The response would be happiness. To the extent that you and I can transcend this, that's not our natures. I think it has to do with sort of discoveries, discoveries of, of an impartial morality. I think there's a case where we sort of take our our inborn morality, which you had earlier on pointed out correctly, I think, is very narrow and parochial. And then we it joins with reason and rationality to draw some sort of more general moral conclusions and transforms our morality. But it's not what but but this sort of disinterested kindness you're talking about doesn't seem to be what we're born with. And uh, we yeah. But there is a, people will agree that we have evolved to take care of each other because that's how we survive as a tribe. That's right. Right. That's right. Um, all right. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for talking with me for this hour. Are there anything else we've forgotten that, that we should say, we should no, add? No, this has been a real pleasure. It's a great, great pleasure. I learned so much and um, strongly recommend the book, Psych, The Story of the Human Mind. Uh, and I, I just, I, you've given me a lot and you've helped me teach uh, psychology. And I bet there's thousands of people who feel just like I do. Well, thank you very much. I, I hope we get to do this again sometime. Terrific. Perhaps when you write about disgust, then we can... Uh, perversity. 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 And we can talk about perversity. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Thank you again, Paul Thank Bloom. Thank you. Chris and Paul Bloom recorded this conversation, episode 52, on April 3rd, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Luigi Scrosopi, a 19th century priest in Udine. Today, that's Italy, but back then it was Austrian... Venice Lombardy. St. Luigi organized orphanages, schools, and hospitals, often begging to support them in a region that was suffering from drought, famine, typhus, and smallpox. He's also the patron saint of footballers, which in these parts we call soccer players. 
And he's a saint, not just a great guy, because of a miraculous healing in 1996 of a Zambian catechist, Peter Changu Shitema, who was terminally ill of AIDS. One night he dreamt of Saint Luigi and he woke up completely healed. The music of our program comes from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at www.gscoasterband.com. That website includes their upcoming performances here in Northern California. Our logo, the image of the dog, comes from a stained glass window in a Spanish monastery, Santo Domingo de Silos, and which the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales have kindly let me take from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz, and thank you so much for listening. Please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email, and I look forward to talking with you next time.